You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 18th day of February 2022. And you are tuned into episode 412 of The Corbett Report podcast. I read the great narrative... So you don't have to. And as you will recall, if you cast your mind back to late last year on the Solutions Watch series, you will recall that I talked about writing a new narrative where I referenced the great narrative conference that the World Economic Forum, and specifically Klaus Schwab, held with his buddies in the United Arab Arab Emirates at that time. Excellencies, dear participants, What pleasure to be together again and to design the future. We are here to develop the great narrative, a story for the future. And I would like to refer to His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum the Vice-Chairman and Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and the ruler of Dubai, who told us that in order to shape the future, you have first to imagine the future, you have to design the future, and then you have to execute. Yes, hopefully you'll be able to recall that last November, the World Economic Forum, headed by Schwab, convened a two-day summit in Dubai called The Great Narrative to discuss co-creating a narrative that can help guide the creation of a more resilient, inclusive, and sustainable vision for our collective future. And if not, please do go back and refamiliarize yourself with that edition of Solutions Watch, where I talked about that and its significance. But you will also remember that at that time, Herr Schwab warned that there would be a book on the way regarding this idea of the great narrative. And I'm here to say, it's here. Uh, and not only can I tell you that the book is now out, I can actually... Uh, <laughs> I can actually uh, show it to you very carefully. Uh, Kids, don't try this at home, Uh, really. Um, Yes, I read The Great Narrative, so you don't have to. (laughs) Yes, it is now available. And uh, there are some things to note about this book, so uh, wish me luck. I'm just going to go right into it here. I feel unclean even handling this, but here it is. The Great Narrative for a Better Future by Klaus Schwab and his ever-present co-writer, ghostwriter, Thierry Mallory. And I guess there are some things to note about this book before we dive into the contents of it. The first is that, yes, Klaus Schwab's ever-present sidekick co-writer, Thierry Mallory, is also involved in co-writing this book. And so here's a research project for any budding researchers out in the crowd. Who is Thierry Mallory anyway? Who, where did he come from? What did, what's his background? Um, I did the just very surface level digging and found 
that in addition to, of course, being an agenda contributor to the World Economic Forum, Thierry Mallory is also a contributor to The Globalist. <laughs> yes, literally, theglobalist.com. <laughs> Talk about wearing your colors on your sleeve. And from there... Uh, contributor bio page, you can read that Thierry Mallory is the co-founder and principal author of the Monthly Barometer, an analytical and predictive newsletter on macro issues for high-level decision makers. Until 2011, Mr. Mallory was a senior partner at the Geneva-based IJ, Informed Judgment Partners, an investment boutique for ultra-high net worth individuals. Prior to that, he was a managing partner at Rainbow Insight, an advisory boutique which he founded, providing tailor-made intelligence to investors. Previously, Mr. Mallory had founded and headed the Global Risk Network at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. For a number of years in succession, he conceived and put in place the program for the annual Davos meeting and spoke at global industry and regional events. His other professional experience includes investment banking, of course, as a chief economist and strategist of a major Russian investment bank, I wonder which one, and as an economist at the EBRD in London, think tanks and academia both in New York and Oxford, and government with a three-year spell in the prime minister's office in Paris. So he's literally worked in Russia, in London, in Paris, New York... Very interesting. So there's definitely more to find out about this Thierry Mallory character who is co-writing. And as I say, I doubt Klaus Schwab is spending much time putting pen to paper with these books. But anyway, um, as I say, there's probably more for budding researchers in the crowd to dig up and report back to headquarters. The other thing I should note about this book is that it is not just the words of Schwab and Mallory, although presumably it is, or at least ostensibly it is that, but it also goes on to extensively quote, 50 people who they interviewed in the process of creating this book, um, or so they say, uh, they interviewed what they call 50 of the foremost global thinkers and opinion makers. Think about that phrase, opinion makers. <laughs> and who are these 50 esteemed, illustrious individuals who they interviewed for this book? Well, the list is in the back, but it includes such interesting names as Margaret Chan. Yes, that Margaret Chan, ex-executive director of the World Health Organization, who did preside over the 2009 swine flu scam that I've talked about numerous times over the years, and who, let's not forget, in 2010 warned that public's obedience to health officials may be fading. <gasps> oh no, I wonder what we can do to correct that. Interesting. Uh, they talked to Jennifer Dudna, Professor of Chemistry and of Molecular and Cell Biology at the U University of Cal California, Berkeley, who won the 2020 Nobel Pr uh, Prize in Chemistry for her work developing the CRISPR technology, more on which later. Uh, they talked to Niall Ferguson, Senior Fellow Hoover Institution, a.k.a. Establishment Contrarian, who I have noted recently, for example, I recently read his The Square in the Tower, which is an interesting book that gets into some deep dive uh, a conspiracy thinking about, oh, you know, actually the Rothschilds are incredibly wealthy and powerful and uh, they control many things. But don't, this isn't a conspiracy theory, guys. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but now let me talk about the network. So it's an interesting book in that regards. And uh, other people interviewed include Peter Singer. Yes, that Peter Singer who I talked about in episode 396 of this podcast, Bioethics and the New Eugenics. If you haven't seen it, you should. So, these are some of the people that were involved in the creation of this book. And as I say, it's just a gaggle of globalists. 
um, as exactly as you would expect. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of this. What do they actually say in this book? And I, I'll take this from the foreword by Schwab and Mallory, where they write that we live in times of unprecedented change and have, as never before, the responsibility and potential to build a better future together. But times of unprecedented change with major economic, environmental, geopolitical, societal, and technological challenges that can coincide and amplify each other require unprecedented action. Premised on the belief that we have both a responsibility and the potential to respond to these issues, the great narrative is a call to collective and individual action. The thinking behind the book is inspired by a profound conviction that to ensure a better future for humankind, the world needs to be more resilient, more equitable, and more sustainable. Of course, blah, blah, blah. Now, here's the interesting and operative part of this book. So it goes on to say, why do narratives matter? As human beings and social animals, we are storytelling creatures. And the stories we tell, the narratives, are our fundamental tool of communication and transmission. Narratives are how we make sense of life. They provide us with a context, thanks to which we can better inter interpret, understand, and respond to the facts we observe. Most importantly, compelling narratives have the power to inspire us to act. Now, this is interesting because I find myself largely in agreement with what they have said. Well, uh, of course, there's much to be said about the crises that are leading us, uh, compelling us towards action. I think there's a lot to be said about that. But on the, the general point that narratives are important because we are storytelling creatures, we are storytelling individuals who are largely inspired by and motivated by and act within a narrative framework, I very much believe that, and I have said as much myself. In fact, this might be reminiscent for the subscribers in the crowd of my recent subscriber newsletter editorial on what Hitchcock taught the social engineers, um, where I started by saying, you'll recall that late last year I was exploring the central role that narrative plays in shaping our lives. Although it may sound trivial at first glance, storytelling is not just a fundamental part of the human experience, it is one of the primary ways we come to an understanding of the world around us. From earliest childhood, listening to our parents reading stories to us at bedtime, we learn that the events that shape our world don't just happen. Instead, they follow familiar plot trajectories in which protagonists set out on quests, encounter obstacles, surmount challenges, battle antagonists, and ultimately resolve their conflicts by using what they have learned along their journey. This isn't just how story works. For the narrative mind, this is how the world works. This is one of the central insights of my film literature in the New World Order series. Movies, books, and TV series aren't mere popcorn entertainment. They reflect our understanding of the world and, in the hands of the would-be social engineers and predictive programmers, even the dumbest B-movie can be used to implant an idea in the public's mind. By this method, fiction writers and film producers play a part in indirectly controlling the public's perception of the world. And then I go on to write that, so it only stands to reason that those who are trying to write the script of history and steer world events would steal a trick or two from the fiction writer's playbook, right? Right, and then I go on to talk about Hitchco Hitchcock's MacGuffin and how that relates to world events. If you're interested, I will, of course, include the link uh, in the show notes today at uh, corporatereport.com slash greatnarrative, so you can go and follow that and read that to your heart's content. But speaking of reading, let's get keep going on, because later on they... They define their terms a little bit. What is narrative, or at least what are they using as their operative definition of narrative? And we get that in section 1.3 on the power of narrative. 
where they write, uh, as the most effective of conduit for ideas, narratives have the unique power to help us determine what's going on, what lies ahead, and what needs to be done, hence the title of this book. Defined in the simplest possible terms, a narrative is a story about something. More aptly for the purposes of the great narrative, it is also a way of presenting or understanding a situation or series of events that reflects and promotes a particular point of view or set of values. Some of the narrators we interviewed for this book go further, like John Hagel, who draws a distinction between stories and narrative. Stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Narratives are open-ended. There is no resolution yet. There's some kind of big threat or opportunity out in the future, and it's not yet clear whether it will be addressed. The resolution of the narrative hinges on you, the people being addressed by the narrative. Your choices and actions will help to determine how the narrative plays out. So I think you get a sense of what they're driving at here, what they're going for. Uh, they're making this distinction between story and narrative. Story is that thing that you read or see. It's just a sort of passive thing. Narrative is something that you insert yourself into. You are part of this. You are being shaped by it, but you're also helping to shape that narrative. I, I get the distinction they're making. I don't think this is a uh, an actual distinction you will find in, in the actual literature. And trust me, I'm a M. Phil in Anglo-Irish literature from Trinity College. I know a thing or two about this. <laughs> but at any rate, you get the idea. And so this plays into their idea of the great narrative, i.e. can we put forward some sort of great narrative that will help to shape the future? And of course, what future are they trying to shape? Well, we'll see more about that as we delve deeper into this book. But so let's get some examples of how that works. How does a narrative actually frame our perception of what is happening in the world? They give some very specific examples uh, in this book. Um, for example, um, they go on to talk about a, a very specific situation that we find ourselves in, one of these crises that we're facing that requires action. And they frame it this way. They talk about uh, the end of convergence in economic recovery during the post-scandemic um, between rich and poor countries and how they're going to diverge. Um, and it says specifically, prospects for most emerging and developing countries look far worse than those of the most developed ones, a divergence that will result in a two-speed global economy. International institutions, like the International Monetary Fund, estimate that output in the rich world should return to its pre-pandemic level by 2022, and then rise slightly above it, while it will remain well below trend in the rest of the world until at least 2025. So they're telling you a story about what is going to happen, and of course this is just their, their model. It may be an informed guesswork, but it's a guesswork. And what are they basing this on? What is their framework for understanding this narrative? They go on to explain one of the key reasons for this is the vaccination divides. So they go on to say, in October 2021, almost 60% of people in the rich world were fully vaccinated against COVID-19, compared with only 36% in emerging economies and barely 5% in the poorest economies. This means that life can start returning to normal only in the rich world. Right. So you get what they're saying here. They are saying that because we know that the vaccines are, say it with me, safe and effective, that means that the rich world that's more vaccinated will be able to return to normal economic activities quicker and more uh, on a more steady footing, whereas the poorer countries, which are not taking the safe and effective vaccines, will be lagging behind 
economically. It, that in and of itself is a narrative. There are certain things that are taken for granted. But, of course, as you know, that is fake news because I dismantled that safe and effective mantra about the vaccines as if the vaccines are going to save us from this scamdemic. Um, I dismantled that in the fifth annual Fake News Awards. I hope you will uh, go and watch and rewatch that. Um, if you are unfamiliar with that story, it is the fake news story of 2021, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. So that's an example of how the narrative shapes people's perception of the world and what's what's happening and their predictions about what's going to happen. Because the vaccines are safe and effective, therefore we know that the economic recovery will take place quicker in countries that have been more vaccinated, injected. Indeed. Really? Well, we'll see. We'll see if that comes true, and we'll see why that may or may not come true. But let's take another uh, a look at another example. Um, later on in their um, uh, their section, of course, on the crisis of climate change, because although they do, of course, address the scandemic in this book, I, it's interesting to me. It's all it's it's not there very much. It's there enough to raise the boogeyman specter that brings in the necessity for you know tinkering with our genome and all of these other things. But the the I think the predominant focus of crisis of crisis in this book is the crisis of climate. Uh, they definitely push that one very hard in a lot of this book. So in a section where they're detailing some of that, um, again they go on to set the narrative for the crisis that's going to require the action, and they start by saying that um, it is unequivocal. These are the first three words of the sixth and most recent IPCC report. It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere have occurred. And by now, climate change is apparent for all of us to see and feel. Hmm, indeed. Well, uh, that, of course, also is fake news, as I've detailed in a lot of different reports over the years, but I, I see just literally just this week from the headlines, IPCC AR6 SPM credibility destroyed by disappearing medieval warm period, which gets into a lot of the deep dive material on the IPCC's AR6, specifically their SPM, um, and and specifically really going at those words. It is unequivocal and what that means and how that does destroy the credibility of the IPCC. If all of those things are just an acronym of alphabet soup of nonsense to you, congratulations, you're not paying attention to the distractions. But it is, for people who are interested in what that means, I have done work on the IPCC before. I will do more in the future and why it is not a credible institution in a number of ways. But th there you go. They say, well, look, here's the body of 20,000 scientists, I tell you. That's that's where the report comes from. Asterisk, not true. And uh, and they say it is unequivocal. Therefore, we're in crisis. Another example they go on in later in that same paragraph. The World Meteorological Organization recently reported that the number of climate change induced disasters has increased by 500% in the last 50 years, resulting in $3.64 trillion worth of damage and the loss of 2 million lives. So much more to say about that. Fake news. Um, but uh, it, it, I have said it before, for example, in uh, my report on weather is not climate. I, I need to do more on that. But there, again, if you follow the news sources that are talking about climate realism, you will see on a pretty much a daily, if not weekly basis, you will definitely see stories that show how they manipulate and lie about those very types of statistics. So... Again, throughout this chapter, it's chapter two, they're just going through and outlining the various crises. They talk about the scandemic, they talk about climate change, they talk about geopolitics and how 
the U.S.-China war is developing and how that could become a hot war and we're moving into the multipolar world and what's that going to look like? That's going to create chaos. And of course, that filters down into the next section where they're talking about societal breakdown and oh no, the rise of populism and all these people trying to have a say in how they're governed, but we won't let that happen, will we? We need a new social contract, blah, 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 all the kind of stuff you've heard from the World Economic Forum over the past two years that most people have been paying attention, but for decades really now. Uh, and bonus, they, in their technology section, they actually tip their hand and reveal a little bit of truth about the experimental medical interventions that are masquerading as vaccines. Uh, in their section 2.6.3 on synthetic biology, which we will talk about more later, they do, they do mention an interesting piece of truth. Uh, it is often said that the 19th century was the century of chemistry, the 20th century of physics, and the 21st century will be that of biology, a century during which we will re-engineer biological systems to meet human demands. And it says we are at the dawn of the genetics revolution, having sequenced the human genome, turned adult cells into stem cells, understood how to rewrite the genetic code of any living cell, and reduced the cost of hacking genes by a factor of millions. Yay! And how did we get there? Well, as they admit, just as World War II accelerated electronics, the pandemic has propelled the genetics revolution towards new frontiers, indeed. So there you go. Crisis. Isn't it the perfect crisitunity? Um, but they do admit some truth here. When COVID-19 struck, it triggered an immediate and furious search for a vaccine. Those that came first are mRNA vaccines that insert strings of genetic code that are computer-modeled into our bodies. Instead of triggering our immune system with a traditional vac uh, vaccine that injects a weakened, dead, or partial pathogen, mRNA vaccines instruct our cells to produce the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. By doing so, they transform our bodies into personalized manufacturing plants, producing an otherwise foreign object to trigger our natural immune response. This approach will soon create a whole new platform for fighting cancers and other diseases, as well as for providing enhancements ever more profound than vaccination. Yeah, what have I been talking about for years now? The future of vaccines. Yeah, they're going to call them vaccines, but these are not vaccines. And they admit it here. They even go on to talk about the potential dangers of the re-rearing re of the ugly head of eugenics, which totally went away, guys. And they go on to talk about CRISPR and other technologies and how they could be misused. So that's the general tenor of chapter two of this book, where they're talking about the various crises and laying them out and the problems that we face, which, of course, leads us all towards... Chapter 3, The Way Forward, Solutions, which I suppose could be broadly summarized as... slightly joking. <laughs> it it gets pretty weird pretty quickly in this chapter. So chapter three, the way forward, solutions, where they do go on to talk about, well, first of all, they further define what the fundamental problem is. Because yeah, we got problems with scandemic and climate change, and we're facing uh, geopolitical crises, social breakdown, and technolo technological threats. But what's the real root of this problem? Which they define quite clearly here. They say the case is clear. 
global governance is faltering because our rising inability to work together at the global and international levels. Yet, as expanded in part one, all the mounting problems we face are global in nature. And then they go on, of course, to say global issues can only be successfully addressed if done so in a collaborative fashion. So, again, what's the narrative? What's the what's the way they paint this picture? What story do they tell here? They uh, talk about, oh, well, such a pressing necessity for coming together as a global body, right? Uh, was made obvious with COVID-19. No global state exists to deliver a vaccine to the entire world, so the effort to vaccinate as many people as possible falls upon international organizations whose power is constrained by competing national interests in a patchwork of fragmented agreements and initiatives negotiated between 200 sovereign states. How dare these stupid nation-states cling to their idea of national sovereignty? We need a global body. The World Health Organization just doesn't have enough teeth to come in and force those needles into people's arms. We're going to need to work on that, and I tell you, that is going to be coming in the years ahead. COVID-19 will pass and they'll stop talking about it, but they will continue working on the global pandemic treaties and whatever it is, COVID-25 or whatever they decide a few years from now will be the trigger for the real un unsheathing of the WHO's sword that they're working on right now. Anyway, that's the narrative that they're, they're working on. And so then they start to talk about this real interesting airy-fairy stuff about uh, they need to overturn the dominant narrative, which is that man is a wolf to another man, uh, homo homini lupus. And they start talking about, uh, you know, the every man for himself idea, the Hobbes's war of all against all and all of this. This has been well ingrained in human culture for many, many centuries now. So we need to overcome that and basically start getting people to start thinking about how they can come together and work together. So how do you do that? <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> they literally say, why then not teach empathy around the world? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Teach empathy, guys. Jeez, come on. It's so obvious. <laughs> like, and, and they're literally saying this as a literal proposal. They should start teaching empathy in schools around the world. <laughs> but don't worry, they got science and data to back it up. Because apparently in Denmark and Finland, teaching empathy has been shown to reduce bullying or has been correlated with reduction of bullying or something. So there you go. It's, it's all scientific or something. Teach empathy. And then it gets even more kind of airy-fairy with uh, a, a section 3.2 on imagination and innovation, where they say imagination, a creation of the mind, but also the ability to confront and deal with a problem, is a glorious attribute. When its infinite possibilities are harnessed, it corresponds to a form of superpower. What on earth are they talking about here? Yeah, use your superpower of imagination, guys. So they give examples, of course, of what they mean by imaginative ways of dealing with our problems. Um, for example, uh, they, they give four specific examples. One is the network for greening the financial system and beyond, imagining new policies, where they note that the network for greening the financial system, NGFS, 
is a group of 91 central banks and supervisors committed to mobilizing mainstream finance to support the transition towards a sustainable economy. It is investigating many bold financial innovations that could, and most likely will, one day revolutionize the way in which climate-related risks are accounted for in central banking and banking supervision. Of course, I mean, it's all about the bankers. We need these global banking bodies to come together to start setting international banking regulations around Climate? Yeah, that's that's what we need. Imagine some new policy, guys. The second imagination idea they come up with is nature-based solutions, an imaginative idea leading to a bloom of startups. Because, of course, again, it's about, well, ka-ching, ka-ching, how can, how can businesses, well-connected, globalist, World Economic Forum, linked businesses, of course, uh, cash in on this crisis? Uh, the third idea they come up with uh, for imagination, the bioeconomy. Imagination fosters applications from synthetic biology. There it is again. And so they start talking about how tinkering with the genome of species around the planet and uh, altering and creating entirely new organisms and things is going to be one of the ways we can imagine our way out of these problems. And then the fourth one, I kid you not, geoengineering. Bold imagination at work. Yeah, that's... That's one way of putting it. Uh, whether one approves of the idea or not, geoengineering, also called climate engineering, or chemtrails, is a feast of imagination. <laughs> a feast of... What are you talking about? Anyway, so these are the ideas of imagination and how they're going to solve problems through imagination. Well, let's imagine. Imagine all the people tinkering with the genome. It's absolute insanity. And it just gets... Crazier and crazier as the as the chapter spills out, um, and they go through some of these. I will just include as a sort of a, a another emphasis here. They're really into synthetic biology. That really is something that they're pushing for the 21st century. So um, they go on to say, in the search for the proverbial next big thing, synthetic biology is a prime candidate. Um, as already alluded to in several parts of the book, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, of course. Um, it's, it holds the promise of reprogramming biology to mass-produce cells for the benefit of, uh, of our individual well-being and that of our planet. Fighting diseases, increasing food production, and generating energy in a sustainable manner, cleaning water, devouring carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, all these become distinct possibilities as biology and engineering progressively come together. Come together... Um, yeah, such perspectives prompt some biologists to declare enthusiastically that the potential of synthetic biology is for civilization scale flourishing, a world of abundance, not scarcity, supporting a growing global population without destroying the planet. In the meantime, groundbreaking inventions are taking place in specific domains, and of course they go into CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna, the aforementioned Jennifer Doudna, who they quote as saying, CRISPR is a technology that allows scientists to change the code of life in cells. We can manipulate individual genes or the switches that turn genes on and off, and we can now do that in any organism with precision. That's the CRISPR technology and the breakthrough there. Indeed. Well, that too is fake news, as anyone who is a longtime corporate reporter will know. Uh, I'm James Evan Pilato uh, has been covering it with me on New World Next Week for years now. We've had many stories about CRISPR over the years and how it is not as precise as they like to pretend it is. I've also had a conversation with Jonathan Latham on gene editing that's highly 
uh, relevant to the conversation about CRISPR and whether it is this miracle super tool that they like to pretend that it is. But anyway, that fake news aside, you get the gist. This is basically the contents of this book. They talk about the need for narratives, then they talk about the crises that we're facing and the types of solutions that are on the table. M imagine the possibilities, guys. Use your superpower of imagination so that... Um, I guess just as an overall impression of this book, I would say it's actually surprising how little talk there is of actual narrative and story in this. Uh, I was expecting sort of more of that angle of it. They mention a few books here and there, fiction and poetry and what have you, but they don't really make much use of it other than what I thought was an interesting insight into cultural uh, attitudes towards artificial intelligence, AI, and how that can be shaped by story and storytelling. And they, they give the example of the Terminator in the U.S. being sort of the, the primary way that uh, a lot of people in Western countries will think of AI. Skynet obviously instantly comes to mind for a lot of people. Whereas in Japan, they have manga like Adam, uh, uh, what do you guys call it? Uh, Astro Boy. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of the Japanese name. Um, yeah, uh, Where, you know, the, the Astro Boy, he's this intelligent robot that helps people. So Japan has friendlier attitudes towards robots and AI and what have you. I thought that was a at least an attempt to bring the idea of narrative into this in a in a more concrete way. But you get the overall idea here. They want the great narrative, i.e. the big story that they're telling in order to get the public on board with their quest for global governance into their technocratic neo-feudal synthetic biology nightmare world that they're trying to bring about. Make sure everybody's on board. Get rid of those damn populists and people who are trying to interfere with our ability to run the planet. That's the great narrative that they are pushing. But again, as I say, in one key sense, they're not wrong. I think this is all about narratives. It really is. And of course, they're going to try as hard as they can to implant narratives in the public's mind that they'll go along with. And uh, that can work very well. It's a, it's a sleight of hand that works all the time. And let's take some specific examples of that. So um, here's one from very recent times that people will remember. Remember when uh, there was the 270 doctors, I tell you, doctors who signed this petition to Spotify, get rid of Joe Rogan and his damn misinformation, it's killing people. And the mainstream media dutifully ate it up and asked for seconds. This is, oh my God, 270 doctors signed this petition. Oh, it's incredible. Well, did anyone actually bother to research that? Because if they did, as, for example, I'll throw a link into Alison Morrow, who had a, a video up about this. Uh, yeah, if you actually go through the list, most of these people are not doctors or medical doctors, are not practicing, are not on the front lines of the scamdemic or anything of that sort. A lot of just, you know, veterinarians and <laughs> other people tangentially associated with the field of medical science, if at all. Um, but whatever, 270, that sounds impressive, right? Right? And it was not questioned. So the narrative becomes, look, there are, and of course it just distills down to the headline because whoever reads more than the headline these days and it's 270 doctors threatening Spotify, they, you're killing people. Uh, meanwhile, the exact same thing, or in fact, uh, even bigger thing can, can take place, but they'll put the exact opposite spin on that. So you'll remember several years ago when there was that petition, whatever it was, the, the document that was signed by 30,000 scientists, 
that did not that questioned the anthropogenic anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. Remember that? Well, you might, but only insofar as it was ever covered in the mainstream, which we can take it from places like Snope, which will dutifully report that those 30,000 scientists, come on, did 30,000 scientists declare climate change a hoax? More than 30,000 people may have signed a petition challenging the veracity of anthropogenic global warming, but one doesn't have to be a climate scientist or even a practicing scientist to sign that document, and they rate it mostly false. Yeah, okay, there's 30,000 signatures, but there's some made-up ones, and there's some some people who aren't even sci- aren't even climate scientists who signed this. So you'll see, they, they will pl- apply directly different criteria. They'll form a different story in the minds of the public, and I guarantee you, 99 people out of 100 who only ever read MSM headlines and think of themselves informed will think that 30,000 scientists signing that global warming petition thing, oh, that was fake news. And they will think that the 270 scientists who wrote Spotify, this is an outrage, Spotify, I hate you, get rid of Joe Rogan. Again, you can see how the narrative can be set in a certain way just by reporting on this or not reporting on that. And that's how it is done, narrative control. So what's the other obvious example from recent weeks? The Freedom Convoy, or is it an armed, violent insurrection of neo-Nazi hate-thought-crime criminals? Any more questions? I have one where they're saying we are an occupation at this point. What would you say to somebody that thinks we're an occupation? Somebody who says that we're an occupation is not exercising their own ability to critically think. What they're doing is they're just parroting mainstream media talking points. They're not actually doing their own thinking. They're not actually reaching out and getting the, uh, the true story of what's here. And if you believe this is an occupation, then I strongly suggest you get on, get in a vehicle, on a plane, on a train, a boat, and you come to Ottawa and you see for yourself if this is an occupation. Then you decide. But be honest, be fair. And if you still believe that bouncy castles are an occupation, then I would... Say, fair is fair, you did your research, you came here and you looked for yourself, then you can go right ahead and post all you want on social media, which is your right to do so. But until you come here and see for, for yourself, don't parrot the mainstream media narrative. You're being used to forward an agenda of hate and fear. Now, whatever else may be said about the absolute craziness of 2022 so far, one thing that I think we can underline and say is certainly happening is that many more former normies, uh, potentially millions around the world, at any rate, many tens of thousands now more in Canada, are not just kind of vaguely aware that media can be a bit biased sometimes. No, they are now viscerally aware because they can see with their own eyes the discrepancy between reality and what the mainstream media is saying. They are viscerally aware that mainstream media is a propaganda mouthpiece for the establishment narrative. That's all they are. That's all they ever were. That's all they will ever be. And as I say, that is becoming a very, very palpable 
uh, uh, understood reality on the ground in Canada, where people are now openly mocking the CBC and their coverage of these events, or lack thereof, even ex-CBCers critiquing the CBC for the way they're handling things like this. But of course, it is not just the CBC and the literal organs of the state. It is also CTV and all of the, the supposedly private entities as well that are all on board with this exact same agenda. And hey, it's both sides of the political aisle, or both think that the protests, are, they've gone a little too far. They're out of hand now. It's an insurrection. And now it's just about strategizing. Well, what's the best way to tamp it down? Emergency Powers Act. No, that's going too far. That might inflame them further. We just want to placate them, pat them on the head, and send them away to make sure we can go back to the business of governing them. Because that's the paradigm. That's the narrative. Right? And more and more people are waking up to this. It's a phenomenon that I've been documenting with James Evan Pilato on New World Next Week seemingly every year. There is a story that we cover once a year of, and the newest polls indicate that trust in mainstream media and politicians is at another record low every single year. That trust f f uh, figure keeps going down and down and down. And that is important because it speaks to a great narrative that is happening that the would-be great narrative writers like Schwab and his cronies do not want to, uh, to, to see right now, and they are actively working against. That narrative is what they frame as the societal collapse, the breakdown in social cohesion, this rise in populism, oh, and people not, not feeling the warm fuzzies for global government and not trusting and loving their leaders. Oh, what, whatever shall we do? But this is the point. And guess what? Guess who's never, ever, ever, ever going to televise that reality for you? It is the mainstream media, who are, of course, the dutiful lapdogs of establishment power. So all of this, of course, again, should be absolutely evident to anyone who has stumbled far enough down the rabbit hole that they're in corporate report land. But as I say, more and more and more normies are joining us here in reality and are being thrust down that rabbit hole whether they like it or not. And here's the next stage of that uh, understanding, that consciousness raising that's going on right now that I think a lot of people still haven't reached yet, but hopefully they will. And that is that we are not idle spectators in some sort of sporting event that's taking place for our, our, our benefit. And, oh, I hope the media will do their job and start reporting things so I can watch it on my screen. <laughs> no, that's not the answer to this. The real next stage of this great narrative that we are writing is to understand we are active narrators here. We are not reading a story that has been written for us. We are participating. We can change it. And we can relay that narrative to other people. Stop waiting for the lying liars of the mainstream media or the lying politicians or the lying corporate chieftains or any of these liars to come out and suddenly start telling you the truth. That is not what they want to do. That is not what they're there to do. We have to... We are the media. This is 2022. Wake up, people. We are the media. This is an incredibly important point, and this is really the narrative that they don't want you to know about. And it's one that I've been trying to tell people about in my recent interviews, like my recent interview with Vaccine Choice Canada or my recent interview on geopolitics and empire. And speaking of, of mindset, I kind of wanted to bring this up. Someone in my Telegram, you know, geopolitics and empire Telegram channel chat was saying oh the trucker can canada trucker convoy is a psyop by the elites to really take down the the supply chain and i just kind of wanted to address this issue where you know there's a, a lot of people on 
I'm sure your listeners, my listeners, and, and other folks, they have very partisan views. And, you know, I've got my own views, but I'm not banging it over the head of anyone. And as you said, you listen to my last three episodes and, and obviously you don't d- disagree with these people, but you kind of just sit there and just, you know, you know, listen. And I don't think there's a lot of folks that are going about things in a way that I think is not very healthy. You know, they'll comment, oh, no, you know, there, there's no virus. Stop talking about germ theory. Or others are going to say, no, it's gain of function. Or, or you know, Kazakhstan, for example, that say, no, it's a color revolution. And uh, you, you saw my take where I gave a very nuanced view. And today it was reported in Kazakhstan that there were Kazakh citizens trying to tell Kazakh authorities that, you know, they're seeing terrorists and armed groups like months before what was happening, that lends credence to the idea that, you know, maybe it was a false flag or, or an internal coup. And so what would you say? I think, you know, it's like, bro, chill, you know, we, we have to be, <laughs> be a bit more respectful and nuanced. And there's a lot of people that are just angry, um, yeah. hateful. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. what are your thoughts on this needing to have? This I, I know moments? what you're saying. There's a couple of different things I'd like to say about that. One is, Never, ever, ever take at face value interactions that you have online with avatars that you don't see and don't know, because we know 100%, we know that there are armies of social media bots that are being run by militaries and intelligence agencies around the world, documented on the record. I did a podcast on that a couple of years ago, uh, the weaponization of social media people can check into for the documented, we know country after country, Canada, America, Israel, all of them have botnets that they employ. So don't ever take interactions online as authentic expressions of real human beings. We don't know that necessarily. But secondarily, there are people, I think, who are genuinely acting and, and interacting the way that you say. And here's the way I would I would frame this. So think about, um, all right, so I, I play a bit of guitar. And um, imagine you're, you're learning guitar and you know three or four chords and someone teaches you a new chord. Oh, here's a B7. Woo, B7, awesome. So what do you do as the sort of, you know, you're trying to figure out what, how to play and what to do. And so now you've got this new chord. So now you tried to put B7 in every song, and everything you play. Hey, I'm going to use this B7 chord. Wow, look at this chord, right? I mean, it's, I understand. And it's a natural part of growing. So unfortunately, as we know, not everyone is intellectually um, firing on all cylinders and not, uh, and not everyone's a deep researcher, deep thinker or what have you. And a lot of people who are just sort of the mainstream masses who would just consume CNN 20 years ago now realize at the very least, okay, CNN's wrong. And so they start to learn about false flag operations and psyops and these kinds of things. And so it's like teaching someone the B7 chord. Okay, B7. So now they're going to play that that chord every single time. It's a psyop. It's a psyop. It's a false flag. It's a because it's the one thing that they know how to do. And you know, I let me so let's particularize this to the freedom convoy thing. Um if people go again and read that editorial I talk about um do not uh, go back to sleep this is not the end. I of course I acknowledge absolutely this can go uh, wrong in a lot of different ways. But it always can. You can't think of any freedom movement or protest or anything that could not be co-opted, could not be corrupted, could not be used for an ulterior agenda. So let's think. Truckers. And now suddenly truckers have become synonymous with this freedom movement. And it's all the truckers. And now we're starting to see people in America and Australia and other places talking about truckers. And we'll have a trucker freedom convoy. It's all about trucker, 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 which is a 
a weird way of particularizing this. No, it's actually about the broader question of mandates and freedom and what have you. Why is it being particularized to truckers? Well, one way that could play out, what do we know is already has already been tested and is already being implemented in various ways, uh, autonomous, self-driving trucks specifically. In fact, the first, um, the first cross-country American autonomous vehicle that I ever heard about actually being tested and used was a truck for specifically for trucking. I mean, that that's so long term, if we're going to demonize a certain class of people in order to facilitate the removal of their industry, essentially, wouldn't that be a convenient tool? Sure, that could, that's one way that could play out, at least in the long term. Or at the very least, I mean, if we all associate it with, with the truckers and what the truckers are doing, then uh, it can become uh, only about that particular that that class or that person or that that thing and so that could be spun in various ways by the people who are controlling the narrative the mass media right so yes could it be a psyop a false flag uh, we're going to implant some protesters with nazi flags and confederate flags and you know as people in canada of course they are always marching with confederate flags right that's so 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 natural of course they'll plant provocateurs and all sorts of things as we know they have done 2007 spp protests in montebello quebec they 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 were caught the quebec provincial police they facilitated quebec put in agent provocateurs to go in there threatening the police line with rocks in their hands in order to promote a police response. They got called out, but it happens. Absolutely. And it can happen and presumably will happen in any movement of any size and importance. So what's the point of this? There are clearly, genuinely, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Canada energized and talking about the freedom mandates. Not every one of them is an agent provocateur. I'm sure there are many people, Canadians in the crowd listening to this, who know genuine people or they themselves genuinely support what, what is happening here and the idea and freedom, mandate freedom. Yay, I'm behind this idea. So it's up to us to put that message out there and to expose the false flags and psyops and the way that they will try to spin it into some other narrative. It is not up to us to sit there and wait for the CBC and the CTV and other mainstream outlets to please report this in the way we want you to report it. That's not their job. <laughs> in the end of the day, you're, you're not their boss. So we have to be that. And for this brief sliver of time, think of the vast, the vast expanse of human history for the last 20 or so years, it has been genuinely feasible for some no-name in Japan sitting in his living room to reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, occasionally millions of people with a message so that we can put our own spin on things and say, no, no, it isn't that. It's this. We can actually direct this narrative. It is, in some ways, the most exciting time in all of human history. And we are not spectators to what's happening. And we're not on the sidelines analyzing and just, oh, B7, 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 false flag, PSYOP, PSYOP, false flag. No, we are actually people who can make a difference to this world-changing historical narrative that is playing out right now. And we can tell that story for ourselves. We don't have to wait for them to do it. It's an exciting time to be alive. It's an incredibly dangerous time. There's all sorts of things that can happen, but at any rate, we have a part to play in this. You know, I might have to think about this a little, but I'm inclined to state that of all of the messages that I have ever conveyed in my 15 years of doing the corporate report, I hope this one gets through to people. 
more so than any of the others, because I think this is the base level of everything. We can set the narrative. That is our power. We have the power, not the would-be global controllers. And when we realize that, we are unstoppable. We really are. I truly believe that. And I know that they are, that is exactly why they're writing books like this and holding their conferences and consulting 50 of the foremost global thinkers and opinion makers to try to set a new great narrative to get us on board with their agenda. It's because they know that our cooperation, our compliance, our willingness to go along with their agenda is a key part of what gives them the power to do anything at all. In fact, that is the linchpin of it. And that we, once we recognize that we are the ones who actually have the power to set the agenda, it's game over for the would-be world controllers. And that's why I don't want to put the Schwabs and their cronies on some sort of dark pedestal. Oh, let's all cower in fear of their awesome power. They are not all-powerful. They cannot enact agendas against the billions and billions of billions of people not in their globalist clique unless we go along with it. And that's why they create great narratives and in order to support their agenda. What better way to herd the human cattle and put them in the slaughter pen than if the human cattle willingly go into the slaughter pen? Hey, please take us. That's what they want. And that's why they spend so much of their time and energy trying to propagandize the public. That is what it is about. And once we realize that, and that really the, the, the key thing that the global clique have that the average person certainly does not, which is the financial resources in order to start enacting international agendas, even that comes from us and our support of their businesses, their financial system, their enterprises. Go and look at the list of corporate partners and sponsors of the World Economic Forum and you start to see, oh, you know, these are the people that we're buying things from every single day. And, oh, they're now using that money against us. Imagine that. Oh, wait, it starts and, and it starts with us. It could end with us. We could talk, transact with each other. We could form the alternative economy. That is our power. And that's what they spend a lot of time and energy thinking about, writing about, talking about, fretting about the fact that their great narrative is demonstrably collapsing, has been for decades now, is that collapse is accelerating, and they're worried about whether they'll get their Agenda 2030 pushed through uh, before that collapse happens. Because they are, of course, preparing the machinery for the technocratic enslavement grid, but it is not all in place, and they don't have all of the ducks in a row yet. They're working on that, and they need us to be placated and quiescent enough, or at the very least, to be scared enough of them that we'll go along with it. Uh-oh, they're going to call us terrorists and remove us from the banking system, so we better shut up and do what we're told until they bring in the complete biometric CBDC social credit score technocratic neo-feudal enslavement system. Then, then we'll be theirs. They really will have all the power, right? That's what this game is about, and that's why our taking the power to set the narrative back into our own hands is so important right now. But having said that, I, I speak with some 
actual evidence when I say that their narrative is collapsing. Not only the trust barometers and other things that are measuring at all times the public's willingness to go along with the mainstream media and politicians, not only is that year after year after year declining to new record lows in country after country, but also there are some funny ways that you can see what's going on in reality. So, Having said that, I'm not dissuading anyone from reading this book, despite the title, the funny title of uh, I read it so you don't have to. I'm not saying if you want to read this, by all means, go ahead and read this and you can come to your own conclusions about what it says and what it doesn't say. And I'm sure different passages might stand out to you. If you can find a way to acquire this without lining the pockets of Schwab and Malray, then good on you. And I would uh, wholeheartedly uh, be on board with that. But... Having said that, one place that you absolutely should not get this is, of course, Amazon. Do not support Jeff Bezos with your dollars. Um, but there might be a reason to go to Amazon.com to look at their great narrative page. So let's do that, shall we? Here we are at Amazon.com looking at the great narrative page where you'll see all of the usual information about authors and pricing and the little blurb and etc. And also, oh, the five-star rating. Oh, it's 81 ratings two-star average, and when you click down on it, you see, oh, okay, five-star rating, 25%, oh, there you go, but one-star rating, 63%, interesting. Well, let's let's explore that a little, shall we? Let's take a look down at some of these reviews that have been left by the general public. So, for example, Azura S, a wonderful insight into the billionaire sociopath's mind. Imagine a man who describes 6.5 billion people as useless eaters, and you have Klaus Schwab. His money has bought, him, bought nearly every politician on Earth to try and herd humanity into his great reset, which is great for him, but not so great for you. In fact, he's dreaming of exterminating the useless eaters completely. Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, doesn't it? Uh, well, that gives you the tenor of that. Oh, fact check. Actually, useless eaters was Henry Kissinger, and uh, and Klaus Schwab has never uh, gone on to say that he wants to kill mil- billions of people. So, <laughs> oh, I should, I could, I could be a fact checker. I think I know how their minds work. Anyway, Suzanne B. They always announce their intentions, which is exactly why everyone should read this genocide manifesto. I am dismayed that only three other people have. They are blissfully ignorant of what awaits them. Well, more people have now, Suzanne. Don't worry. And they know what's what. Uh, S. Montgomery. Klaus Schwab tells you in no uncertain terms how you are expendable. I thought Amazon didn't allow dangerous things to be promoted on their site. Research Klaus Schwab. He is dangerous to all of society. Can't argue with that. Michael S. The Red... Pill, 1L, <laughs> because jabbing just isn't enough. We know the COV PCR tests are meaningless, not even useful to detect contagion risk for a disease that details details no one actually dies from. But here are the testing benefits envisioned by the top corona crimes planners by forcing the global peasantry through routine COVID testing procedures to keep their jobs, cross borders, get government payment benefits, etc., help to ensnare a much larger percentage of the wily and determined ones who've refused to get jabbed, and B, it's being used to build a magical global DNA database tied to personal identity. Yeah, it is. That's true. I don't know if that's the main thrust of the book, but it's certainly... These are facts that people are hammering out. And then we get down to Amazon customer. (laughs) Evil exists. (laughs) And the whole review, one-star review, true evil exists. (laughs) I'm not... (laughs) True evil exists. That is, you know, 
That's a pretty good one-sentence summary of this book, isn't it? Anyway, it goes on and on. You know, read for yourself. Tons and tons of reviews along these lines. Uh, people are not... It seems like people are not buying it. And I'm not sorting this or doing anything. This is literally... If you go to the Amazon page, these are the first reviews that come up here. So <laughs> this is... This is the collapse of the narrative in their face. Laughing at tyrants. True evil exists. That's my entire summarization of my review for your garbage piece of propaganda that you're trying to thrust down the public's throats. What On what planet would Klaus Schwab live on that he thinks anyone beyond the lackeys and sycophants and toadies in his circles of influence would even read something like this, let alone care about what he has to say? And that, I think, is my message for today. I don't care what the Klaus Schwabs of the world say, other than it tells us about what they are planning to do with their vast resources, which, by the way, is ultimately stemming and coming from us. We have the power. We need to take it back. On that note, I think we're going to leave things there for today. Lots to chew on. There will be some show notes, of course, at corporatereport.com slash great narrative. I hope you will check that out and check out the comments in the discussion going on below among the Corporate Report members. I'm James Corbett of corporatereport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very soon.